Hi, this is Bruno Del Granado from Creative Artists Agency. You're listening to Your Morning Coffee, the podcast with my friends, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Weekly music news for the new music business. Insightful, entertaining, and always on point. From Business Insider, we got an early look at TikTok's new music app that hasn't arrived in the U.S. yet. The Spotify rival made great playlists but had a few big flaws. And from Billboard, songwriters and publishers have a $250 million payday coming after streaming royalty determination. And from Ted Joya, if I ran a major record label, I'd... Lots of great stuff from Ted and lots of great stuff from elsewhere. So Jay and I are going to get going with the show right about now. Stand by for transmission. This is London Calling. Wake up! The revolution is at hand! Your morning coffee is on the air. Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news for the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. Now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Jay, I never thought I'd say this, but it's raining outside. (laughs) As we have our conversation here on a Sunday. It's crazy. And it's August. Yeah. It's, and we're in Southern California yeah. where it never rains. Yeah. We're getting planet. a tropical storm, which is super rare. Um, but uh, hopefully everybody's going to be okay. Yes, absolutely. And you and I have been kibitzing here for the last good almost an hour. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, it's finally getting, we finally hit the record button. Yeah. But uh, we got a lot of fun stuff to talk about. And you had a busy week, to say the least. Yeah, I had a really, really bu- busy week. Um also, I, I talked to some interesting people, which we'll get to in a second. But on kind of some sad news, uh, a huge icon in the uh, music industry, uh, Jerry Moss, passed away. Um, yeah. And let our for, for those in that, yeah, I was going to say, let them know who who this gentleman is. Well, A and M Records was Herb Alpert and Jerry Moss, and boy, they uh, what a wonderful label they had. There is a doc- we were just saying there's a documentary that's on Epics, which you might be able to see on Hulu as well. I have not actually uh, proved that. Uh, that 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 is the case, but I think you can. Yeah, and uh, yeah, that was you know again another very artist centric label. Very. And when you if you look at your record collection, I guarantee there's a lot of A and M stuff in there. Yeah, and I had the pleasure of working with a lot of those fine people. You know, Jane Simon and and uh, Richie Gallo. God rest their souls. Just the the greatest people ever. Um, for those that came from A and M, yeah, they did, and it was just such like you said, it, it was an artist centric label, um, like like no other, and it was Jerry Moss, Herp Albert, and you know, in 1989 they sold A and M to Polygram for somewhere around 500 million dollars, and they actually stayed around until 1993, but I got to work with them a little bit later when they expanded their Almo Sounds music publishing company to produce records. It was Almo Records or Almo Sounds Records, yeah. right? And I remember that vividly because we released uh, the band Garbage. Remember them? Mm-hmm. You know, with Shirley Manson yeah. and uh, Gillian Welch, Oza Motley. They had some really cool stuff on Almo Sounds, but uh, yeah, it was uh, end of an era, a loss of uh, a truly uh, great giant in the music industry. 
Yeah, I think he was 88. And I think Herb Albert is the same age. And so a lot of these guys obviously are getting up there. And uh, but what a what a great la- what a great label it was. Mm-hmm. And uh, another passing. And then we also lost Clarence Avant, who if you haven't seen the great documentary, uh, The Black Godfather. Oh, my God, it's fantastic. And and another another uh, kind of a behind the scenes guy in the music business. Yeah. But what a mover and a shaker and a player. And if you haven't seen that documentary it's, it's well worth it and yeah uh, yeah you know it's it seems like we say this almost every week there's a lot of these giants of the industry a lot of people we grew up idolizing and uh listening to their the output of of some of the things that they are responsible for and um it's a bummer yeah it is sad well we're really we're not sad. getting uh any younger as they say no, so not. a couple of other things in the news um uh, this week you and I are big fans of uh, Glenn Peoples' um, newsletter, uh, The Ledger, mm-hmm. with uh, Billboard magazine. And it was a little different this week. It had this really interesting piece um, on Oliver Anthony. Um, and, you know, artists have long complained that streaming pays, you know, poverty wages, right? Fractions of a cent per stream. And as Glenn points out, and increases to you know the difficulty of sustaining a recording career through a slow trickle of royalties. Some conservative-leaning artists are an exception to the rule because their fans often buy downloads at a time when streaming dominates music consumption. I thought that was super interesting. Yeah, Oliver Anthony's Richmond, North of Richmond, became a surprise hit and could reach number one on the Hot 100 thanks to a confluence of two factors. As we've seen with a number of other songs recently, when a song gets caught up in or leans into the American culture wars, conservatives often buy downloads. Richmond, North of Richmond was an instant success. From August 10th, the day with the first sales and audio streaming activity, to August 15th, daily U.S. streams went from zero to nearly 700,000 in just two days, according to Luminate, while daily U.S. downloads went from zero to more than 20,000 in each of the next four days. To put that in context, in a typical week, the top track on the Hot 100 might sell 15,000 downloads. Is keep on kicking them down. Lord, it's a damn shame. What the wow. You know, in the seven day period ending August 15th, rich men north of Richmond had 11.2 million on demand audio streams that earned him roughly $40,000, billboard estimates. Um, but the track amassed an impressive 117,000 track downloads that netted Anthony about $81,000 or 65% of the royalties earned from U.S. sales and streams. And because the track is distributed by DistroKid, which charges a flat fee for distribution, you know, uh, Anthony pockets the entire amount. Now, they talk about this being, you know, uh, conservative-leaning, but uh, Oliver Anthony says that he sits really in the center of the road politically, but I find this really fascinating how many downloads, like, we don't even really consider downloads no. a lot. It's more of a rounding error. Yeah, absolutely. It's a cool song too, man. Really powerful yeah. song, and guy's got a great voice and a really, you know, very sort of almost kind of appellation in uh, in yeah. you know, sort of sound and and it, it, it's kind of a timeless. It's, it really is a timeless song and timeless sound. Yeah, yeah. very cool. Very, yeah. very interesting. And if you um, if you want to learn more, um, get that Billboard Pro subscription. Oh yeah. Um, but again, uh, mad props to uh, Glenn. And uh, the ledger, uh, so cool. A um, couple of other things, really quickly. I wanted to point out that this week um, some Grammy deadlines are coming up. So if you want your song to be considered for the 66th uh, Grammy Awards, um, you have until August 31st to get through that online entry po- uh, process. OEP online entry process. So make sure you get in there and. Uh, have your uh, song added so you're uh, in the running. And you had an interesting conversation with someone from a very interesting company called Audio Shake this week. Right. Well, you and I have been talking about Audio Shake uh, a lot in the last month or so. And we've talked about stories about Audio Shake and sort of what they do uh, at a high level. But I got to uh, 
I got to see their CEO, Jessica Powell, speak at a couple of conferences, and I found it really compelling. And we had a chance to sit down this week and talk a little bit about what Audio Shake is and what they do. Let's listen in on that. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, Audio Shake uses AI to deconstruct songs into their stems so they can be monetized in uh, various ways. Tell us about that. Yeah. Um, well, we actually started Audio Shake because we really wanted to be able to karaoke to all the world's music. Um, <laughs> but once we, it was very much just a hobbyist idea, we wanted to see if we could do it. But as we started to show it to other musician friends and label friends, they were like, wait a second, there's sync licensing, there's you know remixing, obviously, and all kinds of like remastering spatial audio. And it really just opened up the possibilities for us. Um, and yeah, you simply upload a file uh, and our AI is able to recognize the different elements of the song, split them apart, and you get your stems back in a matter of seconds. It's, it seems like sorcery or witchcraft to me. That <laughs> You're not the that. first to use that word. Yeah, I've heard it sorcery a lot. It blows my mind. So <laughs> I, I loved your uh, Play Along with Green Day campaign. What are some examples of campaigns you've helped other music companies launch? Yeah, I would say, you know, our day-to-day -day work is in things like sync licensing and creating stems for spatial audio. But, um, you know, A&R teams and managers and artists have all kinds of fun ideas of things you can do with stems. So like you said, with Green Day, they, you know, created the stems for 2000 light years away and uploaded that audio minus the guitar to TikTok. So all that their guitar playing fans could play along with the band. Um, with One Republic, for example, uh, we isolated Ryan Tedder's vocals, uh, which all of his fans just went, nuts over on um on on social media like it was in the middle of a ballad and it was you know it's just this very very powerful vocal isolation um we've also seen artists do things like uh run remix contests so we've worked with artists that range from uh lots of indie artists and then right now we're on a pretty big project with a a, a major label artist um where they'll be running uh letting people interact and reimagine their work um, so yeah, it, it really runs the gamut, but it's cool to see what, what people do with it. Amazing. Jessica, thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Man, this technology is so fascinating and so interesting and so necessary. And, you know, if we only had this, you know, I, we've talked about this before on the show where back in the early days of surround sound, before there was Atmos, there was surround sound. And we were both working in that when we were yeah. at Universal. And sometimes you just don't have the multi-tracks. They were either lost or not turned in or some, something happened. And then game over. You can't really do a multi-channel mix if you don't have you know, either the stems or the multi-tracks, whatever, you know, those are sort of the same thing. Uh, and this technology basically allows you to, it's, it's, it's reverse origami, as my friend yeah. Paul Bichot used to say. You know, it's like, yeah. it's, it's a, a, the ability to pull and separate all of those elements of a stereo mix, which is remarkable. Yeah, and what I said to Jessica was, for me, this is more like sorcery or witchcraft. Yes. I, I can't believe that they can take a stereo master, not even a master, like a CD or whatever, and separate the drums from the bass, from the guitar, from the vocals flawlessly. Uh -huh. it, it just blows my mind that you can do that. Uh, it's crazy. No, it is really, it is, it is remarkable technology. And we've, of course, both talked again on the show about uh, the Beatles Get Back, which was formerly known as Let It Be, the movie, and how they pulled uh, Just Conversation out of the, of the audio <laughs> tracks that they had done so you can hear what they were saying to each other. I mean, it's just, and this has kind of been bubbling under for quite some time now. You know, this is not brand new, but it's really kind of just in the public and, and, and professional awareness of how how amazing these tools are now and what you yeah. can do with them. It's great. It's, it's stunning. It really is. And then before we jump into the stories really quickly, um, I want to remind our, uh, our listeners that um, I'll be at Americana Fest uh, September 19th through the 23rd in Nashville. Um, so if you're around, please come by and say hi. Um, I'll be uh, part of a panel um, that's called um, Standing Out in a Crowd, Strategies to Propel Your Music, and grow your audience. And Randall Foster, I think, is moderating that. It's the the uh, panelists are world class. Um, it should be a really fun discussion. So 
uh, head on out to uh, Nashville for Americana Fest. That will be fun. And Jay, every week when we do the show, boy, we do it with the considerable help from our sponsors. Yeah, we have uh, really great sponsors, ones that we actually use, which is nice. Uh, the Your Morning Coffee podcast is brought to you by our friends at Bandzoogle, built by musicians for musicians. Bandzoogle is an all-in-one platform, and it makes it easy to build a beautiful website and EPK for your music. All the features that you need for a professional website are already built in. Everything. Hosting, custom domain name, dozens of fully customizable design templates, tools to sell your music and your merch, uh, commission-free, that's the key, commission-free crowdfunding, fan subscription features, mailing list tools to grow your fan list and send newsletters, social media integrations, and live support from their musician-friendly team seven days a week. The Your Morning Coffee podcast listeners can go to bandzoogle.com and, and try it for free uh, for 30 days. Just use the promo code MORNINGCOFFEE, all one word, Morning Coffee, and that'll get you 15% off the first year of any subscription. That's bandzoogle.com, promo code MORNINGCOFFEE. And we are also sponsored by HypeBot. Since 2004, HypeBot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. It is edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton with help from Alana Bonilla. HypeBot and sister blog Music Think Tank are published by live music discovery and marketing platform Bands in Town. Yes, sir. Bands in Town, over 80 million now. 80 million live music fans trust bands in town to get personalized concert alerts, recommendations, and messages from their favorite artists. It's the number one artist services platform connecting over 590,000 artists with their super fans. Managers, labels, agencies, and artists access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms. Yes, indeed. And big thanks to the Music Business Association. The Music Business Association creates the rooms in which the important conversations that shape our industry's future take place. Our membership represents every major segment of the global music business, including labels and distributors, music streaming, retail and wholesale, publishers and PROs, rights management and metadata, artist managers, tech and startups. Go over to musicbiz.org for more information. And big thanks to Ben. Zoogle, Hypebot, Bands in Town, and the Music Business Association. And big thanks to the guy that I get to hang out with every week and occasionally, I mean, every weekend and occasionally during the week as well. Big Jay Gilbert, he is a music industry consultant. He's the curator of the weekly Your Morning Coffee newsletter. And of course, a former executive with Universal Music, Sony Music, and Warner Music Groups. Uh, thank you, sir. And, and I am so fortunate to get to do this show every week. With Mike Etchart, longtime host of Sound and Vision Radio, formerly of SST Records, Warner Music, Capital EMI, and Universal Music Groups. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Well, Jay, let's jump into some of the stories because uh, there's some really interesting stuff bubbling under. This first one is from uh, Business Insider. We got an early look at TikTok's new music app. But it's not in the U.S. just yet. The Spotify rival made great playlists, but had a few big flaws. Mm. Yeah, but hey, this was a nice piece from yeah, a Business Insider. And you have to have a subscription to get to this. And so um, not everybody has that subscription. So we're going to break down, you know, sort of the takeaways. Um, a few of them uh, just right off the top and then we can jump in. TikTok music sets itself apart from Spotify with a greater emphasis on social listening, which we'll get to in a second. It's user-friendly, but the quote-unquote for you feature at its core generated more misses for us than hits. Interesting. And then the third one, the app launched in Singapore on July 19th. Uh, a U.S. release date has not yet been announced. No, but if you're a guessing man, Jay, when do you think we might see that on our shores? Oh, I think I'm guessing sometime in the next year, um, maybe even just a, a little bit sooner. Um, you know, I had a chance to talk to Ola Oberman, uh, Ula Oberman, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, we didn't get too deep into, you know, when they're going to launch or, or any of that, just more about how you and I are so interested in finding out more about this and having him on to talk about it. But uh, it's only out you know, in I think four countries, Brazil, Indonesia, Australia, Mexico, and Singapore. And what I find interesting about this kind of early beta, it's a closed beta. Mm -hmm. So it's not open to everybody in those territories is 
these folks from Business Insider um, got into that closed beta and kind of kick the tires a little bit and yeah, we get the benefit of that. That's right. They said in our tour of the app in Singapore, we found TikTok music stood out from its peers with unique social features and a Shazam style song identifier. But as you said, yet we felt TikTok music's for you song recommendations in its discovery feed missed the mark. And they say a surprising deficiency given its sister app is known for having an industry-leading content recommendation algorithm, although the music app did excel at making song mixes. Um, but like a lot of these things, you know, when, it f- when, when, when they first roll out stuff, it's just going to be, it's just not going to all be there. And you kind of have to have a little bit of patience. And uh, generally speaking, right. a lot of this stuff usually gets kind of added and as, as eventually kind of gets to be a much tighter process and product. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I, I think that one of the misses from a lot of, um, of these platforms, um, is that social integration mm-hmm. and, um, some are better at it than others. Um, but I think with this one, at least from what I'm reading, um, they talked to Tatiana Sarasano, uh, from Midia And she said that we find in our consumer surveys that younger consumers are more interested in having a more social streaming experience. I thought that was super interesting. She said that Spotify is starting to offer more things in that vein, but I just see it as an opportunity that's ripe for TikTok's taking. And I think she's spot on. Yeah, for sure. And uh, you know, it's it's interesting. You know, these sometimes these things break down to just demographics. You know, what age group is more comfortable with a given uh, with a given sort of subscription thing? Uh, mm-hmm. But it, it, it's it's it, they were saying by the way, breaking away from Spotify and other platforms that offer both free and ad supported and paid options. TikTok Music subscription only in Singapore, where users are getting a three month free trial as part of its current closed beta program. There is no option for a free tier that comes with advertising which I thought was kind of interesting because I picture this being a little bit younger demographic that really will be attracted to it. And then you think that would be sort of a, a component of that, but yeah, at least but I think so that, far, no. Yeah. I, I think the reason for that is uh, TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, they struggled to convert free users to mm-hmm. paying customers in the past. So I think that's, that's a lot of it. I know they tested a free tier, you know, in its music streaming app, Rezo, we right. talked about, but very few pay, uh, very few users uh, paid for the app, according to the Wall Street Journal. So, you know, once they finished logging uh, into TikTok music, they said that the app showed a list of recommended artists to follow based on the TikTok account. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. I, you know, it's, I, I don't know. I, 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 it'll be, I'm so fascinated to see how this is going to turn out because, you know, do, do we really need another, another subscription service? Maybe, maybe not. But you know, at some point, it's it's really hard to to make yourself different than the others. That's right. It's that differentiation, right? It's like YouTube has had some success with YouTube Music because it's integrated and it's so close, right there on the same platform with YouTube. And I think TikTok's looking for that same uh, advantage. The other thing is, people are very comfortable and used to that TikTok experience, that user interface. And by making this platform more like TikTok, it's more familiar. And I I see where they're going with this. It it could help to grab more people to stick on just one platform. Uh, Do you think that they have wrapped up uh, contracts and things like that with the majors uh, before they, uh, right now? Do you think that stuff is buttoned down or do you think that's still kind of happening behind the scenes? Well, from what I'm reading, it's still in progress, but there were some misconceptions in the news um, in the last few months where we saw a couple of stories where they were saying that, you know, some of these deals had expired with some of the majors and that just isn't the case. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that always has something to do with it. It says TikTok's core interface might look familiar to Spotify or Apple Music users, but its music mixes stand out. Those familiar with Spotify or Apple Music won't raise an eyebrow that much of TikTok's music's interface. Even its artist pages look straight out of Spotify, but one big difference is how much more specific the app's targeted recommendations felt. You can start a similar mix for a particular song, and the results absolutely blow Spotify and Apple Music out of the water. 
Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, we are generally impressed that TikTok Music's similar mix of, uh, of track Elenium's With All My Heart made a playlist of EDM-infused songs about life after or in love, which we were which were so lyrically similar they might as well have been written by Christ, Christina Perry. So uh, ditto for being able to create a playlist of extremely emo instrumental synth rock with a song from Progressive Rock Archive, Progressive Rock Group Archive. So, you know, there are some things in there that clearly they've gotten right so far. Um, yeah. But it's hard to find your niche of in this world. And, uh, you know, but they're working on it and kind of, yeah. you know, off to the side over there in Singapore. Um, well, we're so used to using the things that we use. Mm-hmm. Um, we're so used to, you know, Apple Music, Spotify, Amazon, et cetera. And whatever your DSP of choice is, you get sort of locked into your playlists and the way that things are laid out, all of that. Same with YouTube. It's it's challenging for a YouTube or a TikTok to branch out and become something that they weren't initially. But if you can bring people in in the right ways, and I keep coming back to the the emphasis on what they call social listening, mm-hmm. um, because no one's really got that right yet, and it seems like TikTok's taken a, a swing at it. You know, they have um, in this new TikTok music. There's a comment section for every song, um, just sort of like the TikTok app. And I think that's interesting. And you don't see that in, in other you know streaming apps. Um, and so far, it, they said that they, had, they found that only the most popular songs on the app had active comment pages. But it's easy to see how drastically the app dis- differs um, from other music streamers with its emphasis on this, what they call social listening. I think that's really interesting. Well, and you know, we were kind of talking about, you know, are you going to switch? And they say here, importing your music from Spotify or Apple music could cost extra for all its charm. TikTok music has one big obstacle. The process of importing music from your listening app of choice takes you to a third party platform called mm-hmm. tune my music here. You are limited to importing 500 songs unless you're willing to shell out for a premium subscription to tune my music which costs 450 a month as listeners who have way more than 500 songs saved across dozens of playlists we were frustrated by having to choose between paying or starting anew so that could be a uh a sort of a, a bump in the road if you're thinking of yeah getting- i hadn't really thought of that how yeah. important that is whatever you're using sure that you know you want to have that those playlists that you've worked so hard to create um, and maybe even the artists that you've chosen to follow, um, that's not a simple fix to move that from platform to platform. No, it is not. But we will keep keep looking at this because it's coming. And, uh, you know, in the old days, this would have been a, a something that was going on way across on the other side of the planet and nobody even knew about it. But here folks are actually looking at it and seeing what it is. It's, it is beta. And if, yeah. having worked in software, you know that, uh, you know, don't, don't assume this is the final thing at all. They are working through it and I'm it's sure in it's beta. Gonna be, it's right? gonna be a pretty it's compelling. In, yeah, it's in beta. It's, it's, it's in good. beta and there's plenty of screenshots here in this article that kind of show you what they're working on. I just found this to be really fascinating because you and I had heard that they had launched in these other territories. Mm-hmm. But we're not in those territories and we're not seeing what they're seeing. So kudos to uh Business Insider. In fact, let me just look at the top here. Give a shout out to uh, it was uh, Kai Zhang Tio and Dan Waitley. Uh, great job um, on this uh, piece for Business Insider. Yeah, very interesting. And uh, you know, we will kind of keep tabs on that because, like I said, it's coming. It is coming. And uh, yeah. what that means, we will not quite sure yet. But it's very fascinating to watch. Our next one, Jay. Our next story from Billboard: Songwriters and publishers. Uh, have a $250 million payday coming after streaming royalty determination. And this gets us into mm-hmm. <laughs> lots of uh, the the whole, oh boy, the, the whole copyright royalty board and lots of things in, in uh, uh, Phono Record 3 and lots of stuff. So very interesting that the, the, the headline says, the complicated process of readjusting royalties owed for 2018 through 2022 will include settling over and under payments. Yeah, and look, we talk about this quite a bit mm-hmm. and on and off the show, and we're going to try to simplify and clarify all of this in a moment. 
but just know that this is, this is a lot of revenue coming and it, it's super interesting. This piece is written by Ed Christman, who's, who's just the best. Um, he points out that uh, publishers should get ready to welcome a royalty windfall now that the Copyright Royalty Board has printed its Phono Record 3 final determination. Um, and they did that in the uh, Federal Register. The last step to make the new rate structure official concluding more than a four-year royalty row between publishers and streaming services. Right. And he goes on to say, the question is how much that bonus will be. While various industry estimates are all over the place, with some even reaching another $400 million, by billboard estimates, the just-announced determined rates, finalized eight months after the 2017 through 2022 term expired, could yield up to another $250 million in underpaid mechanical royalties flowing from digital services to publishers and songwriters. Yeah. Now that digital services like Spotify, Amazon Music, YouTube, Pandora, they have six months to review and adjust past payments made for U.S. mechanicals you know, to these new rates. Doing that will take a complicated assessment of past payments and applying them under the new finalized structure. Right. So the ruling increases U.S. mechanical royalties each year during the five-year period using a multi-pronged formula based on choosing between either the royalties calculated using a headline rate tied to a percentage of the streaming service's total revenue or another pool that is calculated by using the lesser of either a percentage of total content costs, i.e. what's paid to labels, or 80 cents per subscriber. Under the new finalized determination, which for the percentage of service revenue prong is the same as the initial determination for the 2018 through 2022 term, the headline rate increased from 11.4% of service revenue in 2018 to 12.3% in 2019 to 13.3% <laughs> in 2020 to 14.2% in 2021 and finally to 15.1% in 2022. Right. And from there, performance royalties that are negotiated with and paid out to rights organizations like ASCAP and BMI they're sub subtracted from the all-in pool, leaving just the mechanicals behind. The mechanicals are then measured against a 50 cents per subscriber floor, and whichever is bigger becomes the final mechanical royalty pool paid out to publishers and songwriters. Now, a lot of this stuff may go over your head. Um, it certainly did ours initially, and we just <laughs> yes. we read so much on this stuff. But Mike and I were talking about this. We thought it'd be kind of fun to just check uh, ChatGPT. And so we asked ChatGPT, you know, explain the copyright royalty board for someone new to the music business. And I thought this was really interesting. Yes. So it starts by saying ChatGPT tells us the copyright royalty board is an important entity in the music industry, specifically when it comes to determining how much artists, songwriters, and other rights holders are paid for the use of their music. Let's break it down for someone new <laughs> to the music business. Okay. The first one is purpose and function. The CRB is a government agency established in the United States to oversee and set the rates and terms for various types of music licenses. These licenses are required whenever music is used in various ways, such as when it's played on the radio, streamed online, used in movies and TV shows, or sold as physical copies like CDs and vinyl records. Right. So the primary role of the CRB is to determine fair and reasonable royalty rates that creators and copyright owners should be paid when their music is used by others. These rates ensure that artists and songwriters are compensated fairly for their creative work. So that is basically setting royalty rates. Right. And then they talk about compulsory licenses. In some cases, the law requires that anyone who wants to use a copyrighted musical work must obtain a license from the copyright owner. However, the CRB sets compulsory licenses for certain uses of music. This means that if someone wants to use a song that falls under a compulsory license, they don't need to get explicit permission from the copyright owner. Instead, they just need to pay the established royalty rate set by the CRB. 
Right. So the CRB consists of a panel of judges who specialize in copyright and intellectual property law. They are uh, responsible for conducting proceedings to determine the appropriate royalty rates. Interested parties such as artists, record labels, streaming platforms, and other stakeholders can participate in these proceedings to present their arguments and evidence regarding the appropriate rates. That's right. The CRB conducts reviews of its royalty rates every few years, usually every three years, hence the term triennial. During these reviews, the board takes into account changes in the music industry, market conditions, and other relevant factors to adjust the royalty rates as needed. So the CRB operates transparently, allowing stakeholders to participate in hearings and submit evidence. This helps ensure that the rates set are reasonable and reflective of the current music industry landscape. Yeah, so how does that impact the music industry? Well, the decisions made by the CRB can significantly impact the revenue earned by artists, songwriters, and other rights holders. These decisions influence how much money they receive when their music is used by others, which in turn affects their livelihood and their ability to to continue creating music. Right. So in summary, the Copyright Royalty Board plays a crucial role in the music business by determining fair royalty rates for the use of copyrighted music. This ensures that creators are compensated for their work and helps maintain a balance between the interests of music creators and those who wish to use their music for various purposes. Now, Jay and I would like you to put all of your books underneath your desk and we're going to hand out the test. And uh, it's it's a 50 question multiple choice test. And good Uh, luck. Keep your eyes on your own uh, page right. there, brother. All right. Because I know the Very last good. test was yeah. clear that you And thank cheating. you, Ed Chrisman, uh, for that uh, great article in Billboard. Um, it's it's nice to see some uh, money flowing to the uh, songwriters. That always makes me feel good. Yeah, and go back to the to the newsletter and check it out. And and you know, I mean, literally, at least for me, I have to read these things two or three times because it's dense, man. It's dense, but it's super important to understand and know how this stuff works. Because again, yeah. you're talking about a ton of dough, a lot of money that's flowing in. So. Yeah, um, really. I just keep kind of a cheat sheet. You know, we print out certain articles you and I talk about each week. There's certain ones that you just need to. And so I have a little binder of those, those key articles that you can refer back to. And one of them has the rate increases by year uh-huh. uh, for, you know, Phono Records 3, Phono Records 4. And, you know, it's, it's interesting to see that we're finally making some really substantial progress after many, many decades of no progress. So it seems small and incremental, but it's meaningful. And so we'll continue to talk about it, but uh, uh, really good news this week. Yeah. And the last story, was, which is great, is from Ted Joya. If I ran a major label, I'd... And some of the things that uh, Ted... Well, he says underneath there, uh, I do these 10 things, right? So... um, and for those that don't know, um, Ted Joya uh, has this, um, uh, you can pay for his news- newsletter. He has a free version. Um, it's called The Honest Broker. And, and Mike and I talk about it from time to time on and off uh, this podcast. But it's, it's super interesting. He's got a lot of great experience. Um, I saw an interview with him um, with Rick Beato, of uh, all people. Yeah, I saw that yeah. one, yes. Yeah, it was really super interesting. <clears throat> and I'll just kick it off by telling you that a reader reached out to Ted and which prompted this piece, which we'll jump into. And the reader asked the following question. Um, Hey, Ted, talking about the big three, Universal, Sony, and Warner, if you were appointed CEO of one of them and shareholders gave you a strong mandate for a broad corporate transformation with execution times well beyond what the stock market is used to, what would you do? Yeah. So let's talk about what what Ted Joya would do. Well, he this said super t- interesting. Ted thing ten things I'd do if I ran the zoo, and it's got a, a very a, a very uh, funny picture that could have been a Dr. Seuss thing. So he says number one, I would collaborate with other record labels in a plan to bypass Spotify, bringing music distribution in house again, just like the old days. If necessary, I'd even lobby Congress to get an antitrust exemption, much like NFL owners have done, so that we could do this as openly and effectively as possible. But even without the exemption, record labels could make this happen. 
Interesting. Uh, it was a interesting. One, very interesting thought. Yeah. So you know, he, like like he the goes on. He goes on to say, in almost every industry, competitors work together for the common good. That's why we have a milk advisory board or the beef board or whatever. But the leaders of the entertainment industry, like spoiled toddlers, hurtful, aren't very good at playing together. The egos are just too big. So Disney goes to war with Netflix. Paramount goes to war with Disney, et cetera, et cetera. But the leaders of the major labels really must work together from the same playbook for the good of music and our larger culture. Interesting. Yeah, he said, in my first month on the job, I'd meet personally with top execs at each of my competitors. I'd even pick up the dinner tab. I will try (laughs) to convince them that we should cooperate in promoting artistry, raising new music to a higher profile, and creating a fair business model that advances these priorities. Yeah, and he he says that there are plenty of ways to do this without violating antitrust laws, because that was the first thing that popped into my head. Of course. Even when you can't legally collude with your competitors, you can send signals. And this happens all the time. How do you think all the streaming platforms decided to raise prices at the same moment? Airlines do the same thing. They don't even need to talk to each other. There are dozens of ways of signaling your intentions and inviting competitors to join you. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, it is. Uh, Number two, he said, my new streaming platform will be organized as a cooperative and musicians recording for the label will automatically share in the ownership. In other words, musicians not only will get royalty income from the streaming platform, but potentially receive profit-sharing distributions each year. He says, this is a smart move for everybody. In a talent-driven business, you create incentive programs for your key assets, which are people. This motivates and inspires them, thus earning their loyalty. For too long, the record industry has treated artists as adversaries. They have tricked musicians with unfair publishing deals, dubious accounting tricks, and many other bad practices. This is not how you reward talent in a talent-driven business. He says, a law firm wouldn't do this, a software development company wouldn't do it, an investment fund wouldn't do it. It's time record labels grow up. Interesting take. Uh, Number three, once I had this new online distribution platform in place, I'd cut off or renegotiate with Spotify and other technocrat platforms and connect directly with music lovers. He said, I would only need to get one or two other major labels to work with me on this new platform. And and that would be enough to overcome the tech companies. We could either cut them off completely or demand better compensation. Either way, we win. I I hear where he's going with this. I think one of the challenges, and you and I saw this with with Press Play and MusicNet Mm -hmm. back in the day, is it was so fractured that you'd have a couple of majors on one platform, a couple of majors on the others, some indies interspersed. But the moment that you go on a platform and the thing that you want isn't there, you're done. You're gone. So I really feel like in order for this if, if you went down this road that you would have to have participation of everyone or it wouldn't fly, but that's just my at humble the, opinion. At the outset, without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah. And of course the, the goal with this, he said, we, we now have direct content with consumer to contact with consumers. The music business will now be run by music people just the way God intended. <laughs> Even if our front financials take a short term hit, it's worth it. And all that cash previously sucked up by tech companies will now stay within the music ecosystem. Musicians will no longer subsidize Spotify's podcasting deals or Apple's tech initiatives. In other words, streaming is a lot more profitable for all the actual value creators after we bypass these techno- tech- technopolies, he calls them. It's easy for you to say. Yeah, easy I mean, that's, me that's a bold statement. Number it four, is. I would build a management team from people who love and understand music. Uh, he says that I'd probably need to make a lot of changes to the A&R department, the people who scout and sign our artists. They need to have huge ears, but every facet of the business needs to be driven by musical considerations. For start, I'd stop letting lawyers determine business strategy. Hmm. They have far too much influence at record labels and their track record is lousy. He goes on to say, I could write a whole article on just that. You know, no business puts more faith in lawyers than the music business. And the labels have been poorly rewarded for this trust. And he says that for the same reason, 
I'll put an end to marketing campaigns based on gimmicks. Let other people sign musicians who dress up like dinosaurs or eat raw meat on stage. Those tricks go rancid faster than a dripping slab of beef. <laughs> We're paying attention to talent and have total trust that it will pay the bills. Hmm. He says that's why number five for him is the days when A&R makes decisions based on the musical tastes of 14-year-olds must end. He said that's not just a wise artistic decision, but also a smart economic choice. Adolescents and young teens don't spend much on music anymore. Even when kids stream songs, parents are paying the subscription fee. I'd love to see analysis of the average spending on music by teens over time. It's probably dropped by 90%. Uh, he says even even hit stars on the Billboard charts are seeing an aging of their fan base. Their, their tracks are getting more clicks from folks in their late 20s and early 30s, while high school and college students have something better to do. The peak on this metric will continue to move to the right. He shows an interesting... Uh, Graph. He says the record business became infantilized around 1960 because kids drove the market back then. The situation is different now, and record labels need to adapt to the new reality. Uh, he says, Interesting. Hence, I'm, I'm confident my record label will thrive because I'm ditching the goofy kid stuff and focusing on grown-up music for grown-ups. All the data supports mm. me in this decision. I don't know. It's not a bad, interesting thought for sure. Well, I like these takes. I don't necessarily agree with all of them, but I think there's a little bit of humor in some of them, but there's also a lot of truth in some of them. Um, and I can't, I don't think you can paint, you know, all music companies with a broad stroke. No. I, I know some music companies, record companies that we've worked for, distributors, um, where lawyers don't play the roles maybe that um, he's pointing out here, but there certainly are some that do. Um, number six, he says, I'm walking away from AI music. It isn't hard to do. And he says, here's an interesting fact. I still haven't met a single person who prefers AI music to human-made music. A few AI songs get noticed as stunts, but demand is tepid at best. Meanwhile, Taylor Swift is selling $2 billion in tickets. Yeah, I, well, let's move on to the next one because no one's really buying something because it's AI, right? Not at this point. And er almost everything we do in the music business has some sort of AI in it, whether it's your digital audio workstation, whether it's your smart speaker, whether it's whatever. Yeah. I think I think this one I, I would probably move away from. I don't think you move away from AI. You just don't let AI completely run the show, which it's not. So let's jump into number seven. Yeah, and I and I kind of differ with him on this too. He says, I would recruit the best talent at music schools and elsewhere based on musical ability and give them record contracts with complete creative freedom. Mm. And with that kind of thoughts, I keep thinking back to like, well, would would Neil Young get a contract in that scenario? Would, would, would Bob Dylan? Yeah, yeah. So you know, I, can, I think a lot of these things, and I know where you're going with this, is like, yes, there are artists out there that we love that are very proficient. You know, I love bands like Steely Dan and Toto and oh, yeah. Sting, and you know, some of these guys are really good musicians, and that's great. But there's also room for the Ramones, mm -hmm. and you know, and some of these other things, and I don't think. I mean, music to me is art and you don't have to go to art school to be a great creator or artist. I, I just believe that. I'm with you on that. Exactly. I liked I do like his next one, though. He said, if I sign an artist, this is number eight. I will take a long term view, making a commitment of at least five years. He's five years Ooh, ain't I much. Like it's pretty much what you get for larceny or burglary with a firearm. <laughs> We're not even talking what? aggravated assault. Uh, Where does that think, come from? But you and I have been talking about this a lot lately, and especially you know with the passing of of Jerry Moss, it's an interesting thing to bring up, which is, you know, in, in you know, a couple of decades back, you know, labels really did give a fairly long runway to a lot of artists, and we don't do that anymore like we used to. Well, let's talk about that for a second because before we hit record, you and I were having that conversation about some of these artists that would never be around today because they took several albums and in your Pink Floyd um, example, multiple albums before they achieved what anyone considered commercial success. Right, exactly. And, and if you look at Pink Floyd, of course, if you know the band's history, you know, the, 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 the original singer and principal songwriter was Sid Barrett, and he was gone after the first album. And 
you know, they, he would have been dropped. That band would be dropped now if that were the case. And, and we wouldn't have had Dark Side of the Moon, which The is Wall. I amongst mean, the biggest selling albums of all time. Exactly. Absolutely. Those were albums number seven and nine, I think. Um, so, you know, it, it's it, it, I think that is a, a real um, thing that we need uh, to be further focused on in the industry, which is giving a little patience to the process. And I like that a lot too. Develop. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, I, I think you do need, and, and there are labels out there that give their artists that artist development runway. And I think that's really important. There, there's two others here. Number nine, he says, I will embrace physical musical media with enthusiasm. He said that vinyl has been the fastest growing category in the music business for the last decade, but this happened despite the major labels who haven't invested anywhere near enough cash in manufacturing capacity, even after a decade, very little of their back catalog is available on vinyl. And, you know, there's a lot of truth to this, but there's also, you know, uh, a lot of asterisks, you know, for example, you know, the costs of these goods have gone up so much, the capacity, especially after the lockdown and ensuing, you know, a year or two, you know, there's just been a lack of, capacity and now things are getting better. You know, last year it was maybe a 10 month wait. Now it's closer to a six week, five week wait on vinyl in many instances. So things are certainly getting much, much better. It wasn't just that the major labels were knuckleheads and, you know, they didn't take vinyl seriously. There were shortages of some of the materials. There was this increased capacity or not capacity demand um, and now things are definitely getting better, but I just wanted to point that one out. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. His, he ends with by saying his number 10 thing he would do, he says, I'm willing to get fired and would rather lose my cushy music mogul job than embrace the dumbing down and other failed strategies of the current moment. But then he says, but hey, I never wanted this job in the first place. So, <laughs> you know, always uh, you, you, oh, you, Ted funny. is nothing if not thought provoking. And uh, I love his stuff. I hope I it do doesn't too. sound like we're cr- critiquing this. We're not. No, it's really I love this stuff. I read his stuff all the time. He's he's got a wealth of uh, knowledge um, about this business. Um, and I'm a big fan. Without a doubt. Me too. And, uh, but it's always good to kind of look at things and, and have that conversation. And that's what, that's what it's all about. So on that note, Jay and I do want to say thanks for listening. We are going to come back, of course, next week. We also want to thank our good friends, Banzoogle, Hypebot, Bands in Town, and the Music Business Association for making it happen for us every week. Jay and I certainly appreciate it. And we appreciate everyone else who listens in because uh, without you, there is no us. So 1,000 thank yous. And on behalf of my good friend, Jay Gilbert, I say we will see you next time on the Your Morning Coffee Podcast. You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business, Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.